On part one of this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse yeah. survivor named Laverne. And Laverne was married to a conflict-creating narcissist. It's a story of lies, cognitive dissonance, infidelity, financial abuse, and parental alienation. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have not just one person, everyone. We have two people with us today. We have Laverne and Shirley, and thank you for being here with me and with everyone today. Thank you so much for inviting us on. We are terrified and looking forward to this, I would say. Well, I've been wanting to have on um, two people at the same time for a while. I was, in the past, I had a bunch of different people that might have come on where it's uh, the first partner and then the second partner with the same uh, abuser and you both got a hold of me. And today we're going to hear both of your stories and we're going to hear the story of the abuse of both of you, but also how you two came together uh, toward the end and in the aftermath. And it's going to be really interesting for everyone to hear. This is going to be uh, really interesting for everyone. So I just want to thank you for being here uh, with us today, Laverne and Shirley. And I guess I'm going to do this twice. So first off, Laverne, the floor is now yours. Well, um, like I said, I'm delighted and uh, terrified um, to be here. Um. Yeah, I wasn't going to cry for this, but it looks like I might start out doing a little bit of that. So we'll just see how that goes. Um, First, I wanted to really say thank you for the work that you're doing. Uh, You have a really lovely way of collaborating, uh, highlighting voices. And uh, I think it's so important for people, representation broadly, but specifically in in this area, for people to hear a story and go, oh, my God. How is that the same person that I've been living with? So I think I think it's really important. So thank you. Um, preparing for this was uh, way harder than I thought it would be. I have done so much work around figuring this out and uh, working and figuring out what my body has to say about it. And uh, it turns out there was more that it had to say. So this this process getting up to speaking. Uh, for me, the first time publicly, uh, very publicly, uh, has been a lot. Um, I know that you're familiar with uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk's work, The Body Keeps the Score, uh, and uh, Hillary McBride. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she wrote a book called The Wisdom of Your Body. And she talks about how our body speaks up for us 
when uh, when our voice shakes, when we don't we don't know the words, maybe, or they're not even our story isn't to the level of a place that we can even process. And um, when I think about this, um, I as I try to practice embodiment, what I always feel is what you hear in my voice right now, the feeling of being strangled, never physically, but uh, my voice, right? Um, the story that I'll start with talks about my family and uh, the way that I worry about my voice with them. And the other part of my story is about my children and I worry about the cost of my voice and my story to them. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm grateful, and as painful as it is, I'm so, I'm so thankful to be able to sort of step in this and um, try on some bravery. Um, when I think about the setup for, for folks that end up in these relationships, I always think, I've, I've mostly read about a traumatic background significant abuse, maybe a narcissistic parent that leaves folks feeling maybe shattered or their self-esteem is rocky. And that's how they end up in these situations. And uh, that never resonated with me. I didn't quite understand why that, that didn't seem to be true in my story. As I've been thinking about this more, really in the last several weeks, I've been thinking of this from the way my religious upbringing contributed to this setup. And I think the focus that, that you see in the Bible, there's such a strong focus on denying yourself, how beautiful it is to sacrifice. And I, I did a quick Google search to see how quickly I could find some of these verses that that were sort of stored away in my brain that I remembered. And they, they go something like this. Honor one another above yourself. Be patient in affliction. Bless those who persecute you. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. And endless more. And specifically when it comes to the issue of women's voice, there is so much that is said. And there are verses that talk about submitting to your husband, be subject to your own husband, so that even if they don't obey the word, they will be one without a word from you when they see your respectful conduct. And this was ingrained in me. And I watched my mom really defer the majority of the decision-making to my dad. And I really thought I would be different. Uh, I'm super feisty and pretty snarky. And um, I think of myself as uh, being sort of opinionated-ish. And I never imagined that I would end up in a relationship that felt so imbalanced. And the other piece that I think probably contributed to the setup for me is the way that my parents, and honestly, most of our parents, right, in the, in the 70s, had no real understanding of emotional intelligence or really trying to pull out 
you know, your kids' stories and being with them regardless of their emotional reaction. And it was my upbringing was loving and fun. I have three hilarious brothers. We have so much fun together. But it was quite authoritarian. And the expectation was that you obey really without question. And there, there was no space for trusting your intuition. How does that make you feel? So many of us, right, grew up with that. And so I, I think my setup was I never got practice trusting my intuition. I was, my, my, I was, my brain was so strict. I really did not have friends outside of our church. I certainly didn't know that this type of evil existed. I had no practice using my voice uh, in a space when somebody disagreed with me. And in fact, I, I would have said that's quite discouraged. That's really not something we don't want to upset someone else, right? So tell us about your ex, the person that this story is about. I met my ex when he was volunteering for uh, as a Young Life leader, Young Life being this outreach program for primarily high school kids. I had just graduated from nursing school and did not have a job. And we were connected through a mutual friend because he needed a leader to go up to this camp. He had girls going and he needed a girl leader. And we met and uh, I, we had fun. I fell in love with the way that he loved these kids. And for me, that was the love bomb. It wasn't that he was pursuing me so much dating. He didn't buy me things. He didn't do any of the things that I often hear about with love bombing. He, I fell for him because I, it, he so impassionately loved on these high school kids. And he would play with them and he would choose them and he would spend time with them. And um, that's all I ever wanted in a partner. I wanted someone who would do that with my. Uh, so how old are you at this point? 22. And so you're 22. How old is he? Okay. Same. He's the same age. And he's coming from uh, as well, like a religious background, um, same values as you, same type of upbringing. No, but I thought that's, that was sort of what I understood. He had actually gone to a Christian school for one year and then um, got kicked out for um, scholarly reasons, I believe. I found out later he had asked a neighbor to fill out his application form for him so that they would show what a good Christian he was. Yeah. Speaking to that, right, like I, I had not slept with anyone before I was married. That, that was important to me at the time. And I will say uh, he actually told me that he was a virgin. And I thought, oh, wow, that's so great. See, our values do align. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks before our marriage when somehow we brought the subject came up again. And he said, oh, I don't I didn't mean I'm not. I'm not like an actual version. I just mean like in God's eyes, I probably. What does that mean? That's sort of what I thought. Uh, I said, what does that mean? 
And he said, I mean, you know, I, I have, I've had sex, you know, with people before, but, um, because I, you know, I have this relationship with Christ, he's forgiven me. So it's, it's sort of like I'm a virgin. And it turns out he had been with his high school girlfriend. She got pregnant. Uh, they were planning on getting married. He told me, and she had a miscarriage and then that sort of dissolved from, from what he told me. That was one of the things that made me think, oh, what am I, this, that does not sit well with me. That does not sit well with me. And this accumulation of little white lies that he and Shirley can speak to this later. He is masterful, as so many abusers are, uh, in spinning spinning the truth in a way that sounds pretty much like it probably is the truth. And since you're coming to me with it, uh, why else, why else would you come tell me this? If you, you, why would you confess this thing if it wasn't true? And so that is one of his superpowers. So right here is what we'd call honesty after a misdeed, which is a swerve in a way where an abuser comes clean and, you look at it in the sense of, hey, this person is coming clean right now. I'm not going to really pay attention to the misdeed that happened. And you see it in the positive light instead of the negative light. And that was just, I guess, one little red flag that kind of flashed through that you didn't even know was a red flag. Were there any other red flags that were happening? But other red flags were really his relationship with his mom. He he spoke about her with contempt. And I watched I watched him really mistreat her from my from my perspective. But then I saw that, you know, she also lied to him quite regularly, and I didn't like the way she treated him. And that became my framework for, um, not sure what the right word is. I, everything moved through that in terms of why I should forgive you, why I shouldn't judge you. It, it, you had a cognitive dissonance of his relationship with his mom, where you saw him as uh, the victim, and then you saw him as maybe an aggressor. Um, or at least a disrespect there. So it was hard for you to put that together and be like, okay, I don't like this, but I feel bad for you. And then you're caught in that cycle of which one are you feeling that it can go, you're just caught in the circle. That is very well put. And until this moment, I haven't thought about that with him learning, being a victim that, that early on he would come to perfect that skill and I would stay in that dissonance for sure. So is he right off the bat, you're seeing him as someone who is great with kids is, um, you know, seems to have the same value system is, um, a victim, which feeds into, you know, your own, pathology um you're an empathetic uh person who um you grew up you know 
in in that role, wanting to help people. And you are, you know, I'm not going to say you're you're not noticing these red flags. You have no reason to know that red flags is, exist. And yep. you have no reason to believe that someone like this is out there, especially within your community. So, and then especially at your young, at the young age you are. So eventually you get married to this person, I think pretty quickly. That's correct. I, we were married within a year. This is a reason I have become, it's one of the reasons I am not a fan of no sex before marriage because countless, countless folks have gotten married so that they can have sex in, and everyone's happy about it. Right. Um, I remember thinking, I don't even know where I would have picked up this, but I remember having at the core of me a belief that I did not want to marry someone quickly. But there I was. And he is convincing and charismatic and fun and just the kind of dad, I think, that I have always wanted for my kids. And we seem to share this mission. And, you know, you spoke about, I didn't know that people out there existed and certainly not within my little world. And certainly I didn't know to look for someone like that in a ministry claiming to, you know, love people and want the best for people. None of that would have ever made it to my radar. I did talk with my mom and my mom and I can't talk about hard things too much, but we did talk about this. And I said, you know, I am a little bit worried about these things, but I was very quick to say, but you know, who am I to judge? I'm not perfect. I, you know, I blah, blah, blah. And we agreed together. Right. Of course, of course, we're not perfect. He's not perfect. You seem to love each other. And, um, so that's, that's how that happened. Yeah. We were married within a year and I was living away from all of my people at the time over on an Island and I do remember having this thought of like, I wonder, I wonder if my family was here, if my good friends, if we were interacting with them socially, what I do remember thinking, I wonder what they would think about this. And of course, looking back now, I can see that as, you know, a concern, but I didn't, I just sort of thought, well, they're not. And uh, nobody's saying anything otherwise. And we got married. We had such a, it was such a fun day. I sang to him the most ironic song as a surprise. Uh, <laughs> I sang a song, Brandon, called Only God Could Love You More. And, um, yeah, that was so meaningful to me that I sang that song to him as a surprise. And every, no one knew that I was going to sing it. and it was new for me to sing in public and it was, it was so beautiful. Three months after we were married, I was in a really bad car accident and I didn't break anything, but I had really severe whiplash injuries to my neck and my back. And I 
took, it took a long time to recover. I had a lot of, you know, physical therapy and massage. And I have, I've literally spent tens of thousands of dollars on this over the years. And only recently, maybe in the last three or four years, did it dawn on me that there might be some reason why this injury from a motor vehicle accident almost 30 years ago, why I was still having symptoms from that. And I didn't introduce myself properly at the beginning. I'm a nurse practitioner. I've been a nurse practitioner for 25 something years. And a lot of my work has actually been in gastroenterology, probably half of my time. And I, I talk with patients who are having these symptoms that no one else really knows what to do with. Why am I nauseated? Why do I have belly pain? Why do I have diarrhea every time I open up my laptop? You name it, right? And so I have really focused on having my practice be trauma informed. And, uh, but, you know, as our brains do, my focus really was on, oh, this is so interesting how bodies are impacted on the GI tract uh, when they've been through an abuse type situation. And it, it did not dawn on me until maddeningly quite recently that some of my ongoing pain migraines literally since that time uh may be related to that um we didn't have children for about five years and that was on purpose on my end again i had some sort of gestalt about i feel like things are just chaotic enough that i don't want to do this too soon and coming from a family of four, I'm familiar with the chaos of a lot of children. And I don't know, for whatever reason, I wanted to wait. And up until then, I would have said that we had uh, definitely a much more equally partnered relationship than I witnessed in my family. And I was really happy about that. I was so, I felt like I had moved into this space where, yes, there were there were all these things and again, who's perfect? And he's had it so rough. He's been through all of these things. Um, but we're doing this. And, you know, here we are. But when our first child was born, things really shifted. And, of course, I did not have a name for it. But I do remember him telling me at one point, you know, newborn, maybe four weeks old, telling me, I just feel like all you do is pay attention to the baby. Like, that's all you think about. That's all you, that's all you care about anymore. And I remember thinking, that's actually how this works with a newborn. They are so reliant on us as its parents. That's a, what a strange thing to say. And things sort of slowly, you know, it's so strange, Brandon, to look back on your story and try to make sense of it in reverse, right? Because it, it it makes such different sense going the other direction. Uh, I was gonna so I was gonna ask you when he when he does that and you notice I guess right there where it really stands out for the first time that he likes the attention on him and that when it was averted away for the first time in this big way that he really points it out. Are you able to kind of trace things back and be like, Oh, there might've been those times before. Um, but there was these small things in the sense of, 
a kid being the biggest thing and being like, okay, like we have to take care of this child first. This is, this is what life is. So it's easy to notice. Are there things going Mm -hmm. backwards where you're like, um, that those things might've occurred, these little things where your attention might've been on, let's say, Hey, I joined a softball league. Hey, the, the softball league takes away from attention on me or if it was a person or if it was maybe even a family member of some sort that might have been in need um like let's say your uh, parent was sick and you're taking care of that parent and then all of a sudden they're like hey like what about me well i have a sick parent here like were those things happen where you maybe they were minor and then you realize so- hey this is this is big yeah so actually not that i can recall at that point, I will jump ahead to 10 years later, my mom became very ill and needed a heart transplant. And one of my a very painful conversation with my ex on the phone, I'm over at the hospital with my mom. We don't know if she's going to live. That all went well, but there was, there was this time of really needing to be there. And and I had young children, and my ex has an incredibly flexible job. He could do whatever he wanted to with his schedule. And I remember him calling me one of those nights when I was there, so angry with me that I wasn't coming home when I told him I was going to be. And I remember kind of falling back against the wall a bit because um, so shocking so shocking. Like if there was ever a situation that would trump any other fucking thing that you have going on in your life, it's your mom sitting in a hospital, getting a new heart sewn in. Right. And it was so preposterous to me that, that I was sitting there being ashamed for being there with my mom. And then that sort of got tucked away. And uh, that became a really good skill. Um, I would just, we would move through it. We would make it, things stabilize. And I would put my head down and we would go back to where we were. And we, so we have three children. They're little. At the time I was working in a clinic three days a week. And, you know, in a clinic, they book out your schedule. You've got all these people in there to, back in the old days when they came to the office rather than a lot of telehealth, which is what I do now. But, um, and my kids would, you know, need something as they do from school. And I over and over again tried to integrate him as a parent into their lives could you please go pick up so-and-so? Um, they're not feeling well. Well, I'm in a meeting right now. So, um, and I don't know why you always assume that your job is so much more important than mine. That tone carries through my whole story. It's this, how dare you? How dare you question my value as someone in this world by, by asking, you're saying you think you're better than me? Or you you think that your job is more important to me, and uh, that that continued to be this battle 
And I really didn't recognize it for what it was other than I would, uh, I would plead my case. Hey, can you blah, blah, blah. Oftentimes he would say, I'll try. And uh, that became his way, which I have now recognized with a lot of abusers of avoiding a commitment so that they don't come across really as looking like someone who's saying, no, I'm not going to do that, but I'll try. But, you know, I'm really busy. I have I have all these meetings. Um, and so my kids got my kids got left at the school. They luckily we go to we had this tiny school. There's friends all around. So there was a lot of a lot of ways for that to be absorbed. But it was getting really impossible for me. and. What I decided to do was to start my own business, and I started a house calls practice on my own so that I could be in control of my schedule. I, I did it mostly on my bike. I biked around with this little trailer and uh, saw people in their homes or at work, and it was it was yet another thing that I reframed as I love that I get to do this. I love that I get to ride my bike for a living. I love that I get to see people in their homes with these moms with the kids don't have to get out of the house. I can come to them. They don't even have to put a bra on. I can just, you know, yada, yada. But the reality of the story was I didn't know how to keep doing my job and being a parent in this, in, in, in our setup. And I will say, I know I've talked to a lot of other Parents who feel this unique kind of loneliness when you look to the outside world like you have a helpful partner, and yet you know the truth, which is that it is all on you, and uh, it's it's really unique kind of lonely. But it did work that job. It worked for me to um, be flexible. I could, I could move a patient on my own time. I actually, one of my young life kids came to work for me and my kids adored her. She, she got to witness a different version inside the home than most other people did. It was actually really validating for me to hear her reflect back very gently. She's about six years younger than me. It seems kind of weird that that he doesn't help out. Like it really seems like he's not really working that much. I don't understand why he isn't going to pick up the kids. That was another layer, but I, I have to tell you that my core belief was that I had made a choice and I had made a commitment. And I had told this person that I would be with them through all the things. And it honestly never crossed my mind to think I don't deserve this. I, I don't, I deserve to be with somebody who loves me and adores me and never crossed my mind. It was, it was the trudging, you know what sucks to be me. I clearly made a poor choice, but I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm in it. This was, this was my, this was my decision. And so that was very, that was very core to me. And, um, I, I would say, um, so many people, 
I know you've heard this question, but I, I get a little pissy when I hear people say, why didn't, why didn't she leave? Why didn't you leave? Why did you put up with that? And of course, the answer is so complex, right? A part of the complexity that I don't, I haven't read about or heard about too much is the choice that that puts the healthy parent in, in knowing, I didn't even know really the extent of the family court situation today, but everybody knows you have to share your kids if you get a divorce, right? Everyone, I knew that. I didn't, I literally had zero friends that had, that were divorced, had, that had no experience in that. But of course I knew. And I, I don't believe this made it to my higher thinking, but I knew at some level, as tricky as it is right now for my kids to not have a dad that does all these things, I still, I can do them. And I must have known what will it be like for them if I, if I'm not there, do I, is it really good for them to be with him for days on end, knowing how he chooses to not invest in them, to not care for them, to not show up for them, to not choose them. And so that's a part of this story that has really uh, been bubbling in me lately um, about, about the further, I guess, complexity of that choice for women. Leading up to this and now, you know, listening to the way you were raised in your belief systems, like the first thing I wrote down, which is a big thing for you was like, nobody's perfect, um, mm-hmm. which carries you probably through the the first section of your whole marriage is probably, well, nobody's perfect. And marriages take work marriage is hard i mean those are the the initial things but then there's the point of okay now i'm ready to leave or it's now bubbling up here that this is a possibility and then these intricacies these complexities start to become more complex it's now just not the uh belief systems that you had it's not just how you were raised. Now we have these new things. Once kids are brought into it, it presents a whole different circumstances of safety, um, of money, of um, you know responsibility. All of these things come into play. I'm sure there's many more things I'm not uh, discussing, but within your situation right here, um, these are, you know, I guess I would say the, the later stages of why someone stays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And, and there's a lot more in the middle, right? Um, bubbling under all of this is, uh, an addiction to pornography and really a brand new sense of shame for my own body. Somehow I made it all the way through college and I never, I loved my body. I, I never thought about it. I was, I was an athlete, strong. I ate whatever I wanted and, and never thought about it. And particularly as we moved in to my second pregnancy, actually backing up a bit, I remember letting him know how upsetting it was to me that 
he was watching so much pornography when my first was little. And he sneered back at me. What am I supposed to do when you didn't want to have sex with me? Um, let's say in the pregnant, late pregnant, early postpartum time. The time really before the doctor says you literally should not be having sex. I I was shamed for not supporting him during that time. And I remember thinking, he's not wrong. I definitely don't want to have sex with anyone right now. And I I think that phrase I said so many times. And he has a skill of being able to say something in a way that uh, he's not all the way wrong about it. And uh, I'm, I'm quite literal, really important to me that I tell the truth and that I see the best in other, you know, in someone else. And uh, I, I just work at that like it was my job. That's pretty clear. So he'd use kernels of truth? Absolutely. And Absolutely. At this point of your marriage, do you say to yourself, this isn't the person I married? This isn't the, this is not the person I, at least I thought I married. Like, does that pop into your head? No, it wasn't. This is the per. this isn't the person it was on. I'm so, I really wish I hadn't made that choice. Um, I, I don't remember thinking things have really changed with him or I don't remember processing any of that. And I, and I will say that for me, the skill of dissociating, uh, from my body and just trudging through like the way that stoicism and disembodiment intersect, I think is, uh, I'm a walking video of that. And I, I felt some sort of pride in that, in being like, you know what, this is shitty. I wish this wasn't happening, but we do hard things. Like you said, marriage is hard. I've heard you say that on your other podcast. And absolutely, absolutely. I always heard that marriage was hard. And I thought, I didn't know it was this hard, but yeah, it's hard. And so, no. I don't, I did not have a lot of awareness about that. It was, it was really very disconnected. There were several incidences that sort of tried to break through maybe the, the awareness. One, I don't know. Do you ever think, wow, this sounds like a really terrible movie. And then I think, I don't want this movie to be my life, but then, you know, it is my life. This is one of these moments. He had had, honestly, countless assistants working for him, and they all left dramatic circumstances. They didn't do something, and so he fired them, and on and on and on and on. And I was up to my neck in running my business and taking care of these three kids. And honestly, I felt like I don't have time. I, I don't know. I don't, I remember thinking it's a little bit unusual to me that you get in fights with so many people, but I, I was able to reframe that for myself as he's just brave and he's willing to 
he's willing to enter into conflict. And I don't do that. I don't like conflict. And so that's the reason that I don't walk around this world pissing people off on a regular basis, because he's brave and I'm not. And that's a lot to say out loud. I, so much of these, the story, right, is it's oozing in shame and embarrassment of seriously, how could you think that? And it's honestly one of the main reasons that I wanted to tell the story because uh, it's so, it's the story of so many people. And if, if I can step into these things that are so shameful and embarrassing to me and I can be loud about it or as loud as I can be about it, maybe another person can say, you know what? Yeah, that was embarrassing. And my space in it is here or there regardless. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't about me. That wasn't about, that's not my shame that I'm walking around with that I've decided to hold as my own. That doesn't belong on me. And that's a really important part of the growth that I've had. But one of these moments that sort of broke through, tried to break through the, my awareness, one of the assistants called me and said, um, I have to tell you something. It's really awful. Um, your ex, not ex at the time, asked me to go get something off of his desk and his computer's up. And as per usual, there's porn everywhere popping up all over his work computer. And there's also this separate Gmail account. And there is all this communication with escorts, with videos interacting with naked women. It's all up there for anyone in his office to see. And he came home and front-loaded the story for me. I don't know what other language to use. I think you might have said it, a nugget of truth or something, a kernel of truth. Yeah. He said, hey, just want you to know what happened. Like, so I feel so bad for so-and-so that they had to see this, but um, there is this there is this whole prostitution ring on Craigslist and we have a friend in the police department and he and I have been working together to try to take down this, this prostitution ring. And guess what my reaction was? Wow. I'm surprised that he would ask you, but you know what? Go for it. And, and I could, I would literally reframe that as um, I'm proud of you for God knows what. And literally, I, I don't have any memory of sticking with that. And in fact, I met with this woman and the other woman that was in the office several years later. And they said, do you remember when this happened? And I had not remembered it at all. It was not at all in my memory. And and that, that is so distressing. And again, I bring it up because it's embarrassing, but it's common the way that our brains try to protect us from these horrific things that we don't want to be true right and I don't I couldn't even tell you I don't even think we thought about it I think I just bought his story and uh we moved on and of course looking back I think who would ever believe that 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 was true and I don't know the answer to that but I did and uh, again it speaks to the cognitive dissonance of 
needing these two things, right? These can't both be true. This horrific thing that is like from Dateline um, can't also be my life. This, This can't be the person that I chose to make babies with and build a home with and let inside me that that can't be true and so i'm gonna go with the story that's the most palatable and i will say he is skillful at learning his victims and knowing what the palatable version is for them uniquely and i know that's not an uncommon uh phenomenon several other times he got really altered, chemically altered, and came to me and told me, oh, can't believe this happened. I was just, I was, I, I got overserved, and my friends kept giving me all these drinks. And, and then this girl, she just came on to me, and I, I couldn't do anything about it. And my reaction in these, t- this happened another time, a situation with his boss. It was just so upsetting to him that she wanted to make out with him in the elevator. My, my reaction was, oh, gosh, that's so, I'm so sorry that happened to you. That must've made you feel so uncomfortable. And that was my, yes, Shirley is shaking her head justifiably. <laughs> how, how would I think that? Um, I remember, I remember those feelings very distinctly. And again, it's that which one of these things can I believe? And so, yeah. Um, Tricky thing about our life as it blended into this community is that my ex began, not ex at the time, right? But he he started coaching our son's lacrosse team. And as previously mentioned, he does have a superpower of engaging with kids when he wants to. He did not, he rarely chose to do that with our own children. And I wish I could think of the therapist's name that I, I listened to on one of your other podcasts. She talked about this person that you know they have the capacity to be and how you keep trying to, you see it and you, your brain keeps trying to make sense of it. And as you grab for them, she used the words, it's like a ghost slipping through your fingers. And that really resonated with me when I heard that, because it's not like this is somebody who was always a jerk. He was not always mean. He was not always uh, insensitive. He did not always degrade me. And when he didn't, it was really quite fun and lovely. Not in a way ever that I met that I remember feeling this brings our this this bring this repairs our intimacy. Never that, but more like, yeah, oh, there you are. Yeah, I knew you could, I knew there you are. And recently, and I have talked to other women who have experienced this, I sent away all of these home videos that we have in all these different formats. And I got a lot of video back and I had a whole other just wailing of grief. As I watched the, these videos, I I was behind the camera on most of them. And as I watched it, I remembered, I remembered as I was filming it thinking, this is bullshit. 
this is bullshit that I am filming him on Christmas morning with our kids. This is not how it really is. And then at the same time, it is happening right now. And this is what I want to be true. And I mean, uh, to say that that is just the biggest mindfuck is really the only way to say that. Um, the glimpses, that possibility being there and the cruelty when it, when it wasn't. So that was, I would say that's sort of the tone underlying our house. And as he began to coach lacrosse, then there was this new public buy-in to what a great guy he was. And publicly then, and ironically or not, around a lot of people that have a lot of money, lacrosse tends to be a very uh, wealthy or it costs a lot of money to do. Now, suddenly he is in the spotlight, which is where he loves to be. And all these people are praising him. Oh, such a good coach. McKay just loves playing with him. And I would think, yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. I cannot, I cannot deny that. But I would stand on the sidelines just in so much sadness. And and now I recognize how uncomfortable it was because my brain was trying to make sense of these two conflicting ideas, right? Literally, cognitive dissonance. And definitely my kids tend to fall into these very predictable roles. Uh, that if you, as you study narcissism, which you appear to have done, these these roles of scapegoat, golden child, and lost one in order, and of all, honestly, like everything that I have gone through, is is honestly nothing compared to watching my kids be sad and watching my kids be hurt. That is the, the absolute heartbreak of my life. And again, but from a slightly different perspective, knowing that he has the capacity to, to um, meet them where they are and to, you know, that's his like one skill, right? And to play with them and to make them laugh and watching him offer and pull that away and create this environment where everybody knew don't mess with me don't cross me or i will withhold in all the different ways that 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 plays out and i i i have to say that was that was just so hard to see when i was there and all of this is sort of like building up to really the last year before we got divorced and I actually just wrote about this on my blog today. Again, speaking of cognitive dissonance, I wrote this blog. I wrote this post about I had been at home on a Friday night, not feeling well all day. Something was wrong. Literally, I'm laying in pain, Googling on my my medical research database trying to figure out what is wrong with me and I'm getting sicker and sicker 
and my kids are all home now and I'm and I'm waiting for him to come home. I don't know for what, but he comes home, sees me there on the couch. And I said, hey, I'm something's wrong. I'm not. I, something is really wrong. I'm, I don't know what it is, but I'm sick. And he looked at me. I think I wrote with the expression sort of like a kid whose mom really wants him to go to church with them and he doesn't want to. Like, oh, I was, I really wanted to go to this. And I had this other sort of blossoming of perspective. And I remember thinking, I will not beg my life partner to want to stay with me when I am in agony. That is preposterous. I will not do that. I don't want to. If you my person should want to drop absolutely everything and be there for me. That was not, that was not unclear to me. And I knew I would have, you know, nothing, just like with my mom, right? Nothing is as important as the people that you love their health, right? In most, in most humans. And I said, you should do what you need to do. And he did, he left. And I really, I am disabled at this point. I can't move because I'm in so much pain. And my, I finally gave in and I called my neighbor who I really don't even know. And I asked her to take me to the ER. And I called my two friends who my kids know well. And they came over while I was gone and they grabbed our dog and they grabbed the kids. And I knew they would be well taken care of. And after waiting in the ER, I found out that I have this gallstone, literally the size of my gallbladder that needs to come out. That's what's causing the pain. And so I texted him. I said, hey, this is what's going on. I, I need surgery. And as I've mentioned, there's a lot of things that I don't remember. And then there's some things that I, I probably will never forget. And he texted, oh, God, babe, keep me posted. And that was it. And I got some pain management. I went home by myself all night. And the next morning, he comes swooping in as he can only do, creating this big show and giving everyone the impression that he'd been with me all night and it's been hard. And oh, she's just really sick. And neither of my friends knew that he had in Vancouver all night long my kids certainly didn't know that and the fuckery of all of this is that two or three days later I wrote this post on this blog that I had at the time and I remember that I was not mad at him at all I wasn't I I had no ill feelings toward him at the time my whole post was about I'm so grateful of all this gratitude for such good friends and such a deep community that will drop everything and come take care of me. And that was my, the whole focus of this post. And I, it was so unironic to me that I wrote that. I just was feeling this gratitude with no, nothing placed on him. And as I think back, I really learned it doesn't serve me 
to try to place blame where it belongs with him. I end up getting shamed, um, verbally degraded. How dare you? Who do you think you are? Don't you know who I am? All of that, all of that kind of tone. And I, I think I just chose that I wasn't, I wasn't going to fight those. I wasn't going to fight those battles anymore. And so my brain literally just said, how about we just be so grateful for these people that came in and took care of you? And I, I just wrote an, a re-edit of that telling the true story. But it was a few months later that things just kept getting really increasingly weird. And really throughout these years, there were, I would say, sort of, maybe whisperings of infidelity or people would say, you know, he's downtown a lot with, you know, all kinds of people. He kind of parties a lot. And I was like, yeah, yeah, he does. And I had really gotten to a point where it was so much easier for me to not have him there with so much less lonely to be doing the dishes, to be putting the kids to bed to be doing all the things without him in the other room, not helping me. It was, it was easier for him to not be there. And the, there was so much less chaos, so much less drama without him there. I didn't have to worry about protecting the kids, which I couldn't even articulate at the time. And I, I think I really just gave up on, on real, I guess, anything. But there were just, I guess, little whisperings all the time about this. And regularly, he would roll in at two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning. And I would have been laying in bed thinking, maybe this is, maybe this is it. He, he must be dead. He must be dead. Because while he wouldn't, he would have called if, you know, no, he would have known that this would be upsetting to me that, that it was so late. And I mean, I mean, probably 10 times at least I laid in bed thinking he was probably dead. And I remember thinking about, you know, our life insurance policy it must be it's probably I think I think we'll probably be OK if that's the case. I mean, it is what it is. That really it is what it is. This shrug of survival I really like that phrase. I really embodied that. And then it wasn't during this time I had started started sort of finding my voice in little bits and i really attribute that to having started to do yoga and there's something about me taking up all the space on that mat sprawling out however i wanted to there's something really symbolic about just me taking up my space that really started to create something in me and my yoga instructor who just is so intuitive and she she really healed me in my opinion and i had this i i can see that i was growing stronger and i was i was starting to not have it and as that sort of escalated I, we started to get ready to go to on a camping trip. And to say that 
I was always caught off guard with this man would be such a gross understatement. It was always something new, always new plans, something exciting, something devastating, just always something. And I'm a pretty slow processor. Takes me a while to kind of catch up. But he was so excited about this camping trip. And keep in mind, I really, we did not do much as a family because he would not commit to dates. So we didn't go camping with other families because he would say, oh, I, I wouldn't be able to be out of cell range. That that just wouldn't, that wouldn't work for me for my business. And, you know, I'm the one that makes the money around here. And, you know, again, how dare you ask me to give up that time to be with you guys. And so we, I really, we lost out really on a lot of chances to play as a family during that time. But he was so excited about this trip. And I remember thinking, something's off. This Something's off. And he said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to this, this festival. And at the time, I thought festival meant like a concert. I don't know. He was going to a concert. And I didn't look into it at all. He was going to go do that. I was going to come down on the train with my two littles. We would all meet up and go camping. And I am in the middle at that point of sort of trying to disassemble my, my private practice um, into something, trying to shift that. And really to say that I was on the brink of insanity for most of those years trying to hold my shit together was, is, is really an accurate way of, of putting that. And the night before finally got us all ready, I got a packed and everything. And I looked up this festival that he was going to and I pull it up and I see these images of basically scantily clad women, swimming pool, three foot swimming pool. It's, it's spring break, right? For grown up. And I was so sick to my stomach. It was this deep compilation of realization of what was happening and I, I literally made myself a drink that I put in my coffee cup to make it onto the train because I thought, how am I going to spend five hours with my little kids pretending like everything is fine, drawing with them and looking out at the window while I am crumbling right inside. Uh, there's, there's a lot more involved in that, but eventually when I confronted him about it later, Again, the same sneering, like I said, I don't understand why you wouldn't want me to go with you. It feels really strange to me that I am your wife and you tell me I'm the love of your life. And I don't understand why you wouldn't want me to join you in this. I don't understand that. And he said, well, if you would have found me on a trampoline, like laying with another woman, you would have been really pissed. And again, I remember thinking, not wrong. You are not wrong. I would be really pissed. And at this point, though, that wasn't enough for me. And I, I could feel, I could feel myself coming to the end. And several weeks later, after another ridiculous event, I sat him down on the bed and I said, I can't do this anymore like this. 
I can't, I won't do this anymore. And what I meant was, I'm not going to do this anymore where you do whatever the hell you want to do. And I put my head down and I do all the hard stuff. And we just agree that that's the way it's going to be. I'm not doing that anymore. And so we need to figure this out. And several days later, he said something like, I mean, when you told me you wanted a divorce, I just knew you're right. We should get a divorce. And I said, that is, that's, that's not what I said. I said, I don't want to do this like this anymore. But that, that had sort of, uh, I think that was his out. And I really feel like he probably, I can imagine him thinking, I bet if I just push this one boundary, then she'll leave me and I can blame it on her and we'll be done. And little did he know my capacity for, you know, the Bible uses this phrase, you know, forgive 70. How many times should you forgive someone? 70 times seven. He had no idea. Challenge accepted. I am, I am very competitive. And I think I, I think I blew through. He finally was done. And he saw it as me. He could blame it on me. I was the one who said I wanted a divorce. And uh, on our 20th anniversary, we had literally made plans the night before to try to maybe do some repair. I bought stuff for a picnic. We were going to buy each other paddle boards. And I came home and he had all of his things. My kids were sitting down in this living room. and all of his bags he had packed in front of them, apparently. All of his stuff were in these gar- big plastic garbage bags. And I don't know how I would have done it differently, but I wish I would have done this differently, which was to do what I always do, to swoop in and absorb and see the pain on my kid's face and to try to make it better. And I said, you know, he didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. And I didn't stop. I didn't think to let him say why he was leaving. I answered the question that he wasn't, that nobody was asking. And I told him, you know, we just, you know how sometimes you guys don't get along. You need some space to be apart. So that's what daddy and I need right now. And that's, that's what's going to happen. And honestly, I think that was the setup for me allowing their pain and their discomfort to silence me. I think he would say, absolutely not on their behalf. But I, I was so concerned with injuring them further that as things moved forward, I was, I stayed pretty quiet. And um, yeah, he left and went to Burning Man just seems picturesque to me and um I took my kids on this family vacation that we had decided he had told me I'm doing it this time we're going then he bailed at the last minute and so I got them all together and somehow Montana and I was barely holding it together and ironically I stopped in uh, at a friend's house a few hours away and she said, you should listen to this. You should listen to this. Put this in your CD player, which I had. And she gave me Brene Brown's uh, initial work on vulnerability. 
and I put it in and that's what we listened to. And uh, I don't exactly know why that was healing for me, but I feel like that somehow got me to our trip. And my youngest at the time, we got back in from a break and they were like, hey, can you put that comedian on again? I want to hear that. Can you put that comedian on again? And I said, oh, the shame, the shame researcher. Absolutely. Let's listen to the shame researchers. So right here is kind of like a bookend to the first part of everything that happened. And this is where things really start to change. So what happens from here? So I find myself in this shocking position that I had done everything in my power to prevent, which was I was a single mom. To make things more interesting or preposterous, maybe, I had agreed to sell our dream home about two years previously to buy a really should have been a teardown, but um, we we decided to fix it up. And I remember thinking, if this takes some of the stress off of you, so I have, don't have to keep hearing about how I need to be making more money, while of, on the other hand, you know, he is spending money left and right, but the message is still very clear, I need to be making more money. If this is what does it so that our overhead isn't so high, I will do it. And so we had moved into this home and it was pretty rough. And the outside though was beautiful. The siding had been redone. Some landscaping had been put in place. So this, this exterior of this home has been really redone and looks quite, it's really beautiful when he left and I found out about three, he had, he had managed. So not atypically he had managed all of our finances. He'd done it out of his office. So I didn't really even see anything that was, that was being done. He did it all. He did all of it. And he, I knew that we had a owner contract on this home and my understanding was that the lease was up in two more years, something like that. And again, I had no documentation, no paperwork. I trusted him implicitly for some unknown reason with all of it. And three months after he left, I got a notice in the mail that said, just a reminder, your mortgage is due in full by the end of the month. And I remember thinking, Come again? When you say mortgage in full, do you mean like $300,000? This is what I have to like find in cash to give to you? And in fact, that was the correct answer. And when I called him to talk about it, as per usual, it was thrown back at me. You knew this was the setup. And how, like you, why didn't you, why would you not have known this? How How would you think that I would you know, try to spring that on you. And I would think, I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know. But I then was in a mad scramble to save this house. And 
part of the reason I had agreed to it was because it was smack in the middle of the middle school and the high school where my kids would be. And it was so important to me that it was walkable for them, that uh, it was literally 10 blocks from my office at the, at the time as I transitioned. I, I held on to that with everything. And to say that I fought and scratched and clawed is, is again, such an understatement. I, 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 I spent hours on the phone trying to talk to this guy who was the owner. And I was sitting there in this upheaved house, torn apart on the inside house, trying to explain to him why I didn't have the money to do that. And would he be willing to just extend it for two months while I tried to get my shit together? He was not having it. He knew for sure who my husband was at the time. And of course he had the money and of course he would take care of it. And it was actually kind of one of the first times thinking, no, actually you don't, you, you are seeing this uh, inaccurately. He will not, I know now he won't step up and make this right. This is on me. And that was absolutely true. He wanted nothing to do with it and just shamed me for not being willing to give up the house. And um, eventually, after a lot of work and a lot of begging, I borrowed enough money to pay off this guy. And then I tried to refinance the home so I could pay off the loans I had just borrowed from friends and was told it's not financeable there's there's no insulation for example in the inside of the house it's down to studs there's wires hanging and uh it turns out insurance companies don't want to insure a home that looks like that and eventually i uh found someone who helped me refinance it and literally three months ago i finished the remodel and I have I've been in the middle of a remodel this whole time because I didn't have money to finish it. And so I was my my older brother helped me endlessly. Friends helped me endlessly gut my whole upstairs, reframe it. Um, all of it is really the labor of my family. And um, so this that was sort of the underlying uh, instability, right? And chaos. And I remember thinking, how am I going to have a Christmas for these kids when I am like beside myself? I am barely holding anything together. And I, we've established I'm pretty good at holding shit together. And I was, I was on the edge. So this was, this was bubbling underneath, right? This was, this was the setting for this new drama that was developing, which is what I now know to be post-separation abuse. And I had no language for it, but we went from what I thought was a terrible, loveless marriage, like learning to find out scattered with infidelity to something on a completely different level. I would have never predicted. And I remember I told so many people, I don't know what's going on. Like, I feel like, I feel like it seems like this is how he would react if he walked in and caught me sleeping with his best friend. That's what, that would make sense. This rage and this like, you know, just throwing everything he had at me and I had no explanation for it. And 
I remember thinking logically you you also can remember what these last 20 years have been like and you remember that I have been faithful to you and I did all the things while you did all the things and I I did, had no grasp on the fact that that might not be the reality that he was holding on to right and and I just I felt you know Tina Swithin actually uses this expression people feel like they've they've suddenly got their own personal terrorist. And I 100% resonate with that. Every day, I swear, multiple times a day, it was something new in my email, some new text, um, just these these hateful messages, uh, hurtful things happening to my kids, neglecting my kids. Um, First time I had to let them go to him. I wailed and it was long overdue, the wailing, right? I had, I'd held so much in and I sank against my bathroom door and my labradoodle came over, wouldn't stop licking my tears. And I, it was just, it just felt like such cruelty that after doing what I thought was the best thing I could do for these kids, I then had to just give them up and let them go with this person. And I didn't understand at the time this idea of weaponizing someone's children against their partner. I would have never thought that that was a thing, but I lived it. And I, I, it was just devastating is the only word I was, was like being in a war and I say that knowing I have not been in an actual war and I was not fearing for my life, but I was afraid. I was, I was so afraid. At one point I, he had threatened to come take, come onto my property and take stuff out of the garage when, and we had an agreement that what was in there was mine at the time we'd had, we had this agreement and I called the cops I have a friend who works for a dispatch and I, I just said, what do I, what do I do if he comes onto my property? Cause I'm, I'm afraid. And he has threatened to do whatever he wants because it's still his property technically. And that was a new feeling for me to, to literally be shaking in my own, you know, scaffolding of a house. And I woke up first thing the next morning and I, went to our hardware store that opened up at six and I was there as soon as they opened I bought all these new locks and I put them on and I just lived in this I guess the best way to put it is these two layers of terror that were happening there was the instability in my home the chaos of all of the messaging and all of the the, the threats and the really verbal abuse right and and then what i now know to call legal abuse preposterous motions for things declarations that were just complete lies and i i again i just kept i in fact to this day i even recently i think we were talking about this the other day just when I think there's not another thing that could happen that would shock me that he has done. I think I would be past being shocked by anything. Um, this was another layer of that. Like he, 
he lied about everything right in front of the judge when we ended up going to trial. And I wasn't worried about that because I thought it was very clear. I thought it would be very clear to the, to the court that I had been the primary caretaker for these kids. I was the one that wanted them. He had so clearly demonstrated to me that he wasn't interested in, in fathering them really unless it was convenient for him or it made him look good to do so in public. And I, I didn't expect a fight from him on that because he never wanted to be with them anyway. So why I, I was completely caught off guard that he would want them. And, and when we ended up in court, I thought it, I just thought it would be so clear and it was not at all clear. And they looked at our situation and this is this is a thing that I work with folks on sometimes now too, where I was finding my voice and I was allowing myself to feel all of my feelings. And I sat in the courtroom and I was pissed. And even though I didn't say anything with my mouth, I was shooting daggers at him with my eyes. And um, and he was so relaxed. And just calm and really compassionate for this whole situation here that that the judges really had to see. And um, I just watched this whole theater play out. And um, it was so stunning that we walked out of there with exactly what he wanted. So what did you do wrong, in your opinion, in the in hindsight really understanding the reality of family court and understanding that the limitations uh the number of narcissists that are in those powerful positions themselves the good old boys club grossly underestimated that and i didn't understand really how many awful, awful things these folks have to bear and witness and and make judgment on and how something little like him lying about everything or me saying he hadn't really wanted to be involved when he was, when, you know, up to this point, they're thinking, well, he's here now and he's showing up and he wants to do it. So I really don't see what the problem is. And I, I, uh, I had no idea that to expect that. And I didn't know what role my, my own anger and my, like, um, I'm not having this and my really enthusiasm. And if you've met me, like my anger is, is quite dampered. Um, it usually means that I, I have an expression on my face that looks kind of stern and I might raise my voice a little bit, but, um, so going back, right, I, I, if I would have known that this was the reality of the court situation, really, I learned this from Tina Swiven about understanding that these court officials get a tiny glimpse. They get this little snippet, a vignette of your life. And I didn't understand the dynamic of him sitting there being relaxed and he has a unique capacity to really embody victimhood and compassion and he has cognitive empathy for days and he so he is sitting here with as the relaxed 
collaborative, you know, really it's just perplexing that, that she's so upset and I'm finding my voice and I'm not having it. And I'm mad that he's lying. And I am mad that he's trying to take these kids that he hasn't expressed interest in. And, um, so what I did wrong, um, was I allowed that, that, uh, glimpse into our life to play out in court. And, um, I do think it contributed to some of the court decisions that, that happened. Um, And for, uh, Shirley, who's sitting beside you, um, at this point of the relationship, um, have you shown up in, in this person's life? In the ex's life? Okay. So you are now here privy to what is, is going on in this whole court. Um, before we ever get into your story, I just want, I guess, your input here. What are you feeling and what are you seeing as far as um, how Laverne is presenting herself and and what are you believing of everything that's going on? Yeah, I mean, just a snapshot of that because there's the whole... Up- uptick to my story, but the snapshot is that um, he and I had probably only been together for three or four months when he sent me an email that included the um, court document that Laverne had filed um, stating some really atrocious acts that had been committed by him. And that was one of the first red flags for me because I, I thought to myself, wow, this feels really inappropriate that you're sending me this document that's being filed in the court by your ex-wife. But the reason why he did it was as a display of the lies that she was capable of telling. And, and here is my ex actually submitting lies to the court, which is public record and will be accessed by my kids potentially. Um, so it, it, it was like he headed off the truth and portrayed it in a way that then caused me to question whether or not these things were true, even though it felt very, um, it felt very off at the time. Um, and not to go into too much detail at this point, but he, from the very moment we started dating, portrayed himself as the most loving, involved, caring father. And it was probably two years before I started to see that that was actually not the case. Um, So he really did a masterful job of of portraying himself as a dad that he had not been with Laverne. Um, Does that answer your question? Yeah, and as you, or as Laverne mentioned earlier, you two cross paths at lacrosse. So I assume um, you got the perception of how he was at lacrosse to begin with. All right. right. So thank you, uh, Shirley, for that. And now um, let's uh, go back here to Laverne to tell us uh, more about the post-separation abuse. For the next two years, really, Every time the kids were with him, when they would come back in, not only is there this really painful transition 
when they're coming back into my space, which I know is very common, they're fighting, they're angsty, they're hungry. None of them have done their homework. They don't know where anything is. And I'm scrambling to pick up the emotional pieces and the logistical pieces of all of this. And, but meanwhile, they are carrying his victimhood for him. Like he handed out these assignments to them. This is, this is, this is what mom's doing to us. So not fair that I don't, that I don't have equal time. So not fair. And they carried that torch. And every time they would come back, I would, I would hear about it. It's not fair. Why are you doing this? So not fair. And like I alluded to earlier, I really, I watched how traumatic it was for these kids to leave to all these different places that he was living in. And I now know there were all different women in and out of those spaces. And they were often left alone with my older one in charge. And they, it was a lot for them. And I could see how distressing it was. And I felt like I didn't want to add to that by countering this narrative that I was trying to keep them from him, that I, that I was all these things that I was controlling, that I was manipulative, that I was um, all of the things that he was projecting really. And so I largely stayed silent and I would say, or I, I mean, I didn't stay silent, but I would say things like, you know what, that's just what dad and I have agreed on right now in the courts. And, um, you know, well, there might be a time when we decide together that um, expanding that time makes more sense. Um, but right now, this is what we're, you know, was sort of my, that was sort of my MO. And really, I watched this breakdown of this trust that I had always assumed with my kids. Like, they always believed me. They always I never felt them questioning and all of a sudden they were suspicious of me. And that was this new feeling that came into this unfinished chaotic house was this suspicion. And I did not know what to do with that. I, I did not know what to do with that. It was so distressing. And in addition to that, then there were these increased triangulation between the kids and the the roles that I mentioned earlier, I could see sort of becoming more pronounced. And one child, so clearly the favorite, all three of them would say that that's the case. And the the um, conflict that they all, you know, you could sense the competition, which I had felt before. Competition for dad's attention, dad's affection. Um, really, I, I think three kids is hard. I think three, any, anything is tricky, but I felt an extra layer of that and that I now can recognize was this, this survival drive to get his attention. Right. And, and that means that the other, the other ones are your competition and that became more and more pronounced. And all the while he was manipulating the kids to ask for more time with me so heartbreaking I just want to be with you guys it's just so sad that I'm not and at the same time he would have them and then choose to not be with them right I remember one Valentine's Day 
I, it was time, it was his time with them. And I really wanted them. And I said, Hey, if, you know, if you're not doing anything, I would love to have the kids. I always like to make those little things special. It's not your, they're, they're my kids. I will do what I want with them on my time. Yeah. And then I found out later that he left them at home to Vancouver again to party and message my kids in the middle of the night. Hey, it's, um, I think I might not come home tonight because I drank a little too much. So um, just because I want to make a good choice, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll come home in the morning. And my kids are technically old enough, you know, to be alone, fifth grade, seventh grade, ninth grade. Um, but not, not like that would be ideal, right? And that, that felt like what I now know to be weaponizing of my children. Like, he really knew that that is how he could hurt me was to fight for them and disappear from them and leave them, just take them, you know, take my capacity to be with them. And that, that definitely continued. And, and, and also you're the one picking up the pieces and doing all of the work. So when they show back up at your home, uh, they're, they're coming in, they're discombobulated, I assume, um, and it probably takes, uh, you know, maybe a couple days before they get to be a little bit normal, um, and that their behavior comes, okay, you have two behaviors, the behavior in their, the one home and then the behavior in your home. But when they come to your home, it, it takes a couple days for them to normalize and get accustomed to, ah, you know, we can relax here most likely. This is a safe parent. Correct. Correct. And of course, safe parent means I can express all of my feelings to you. And when I'm mad about anything, you're going to hear about it. And I remember thinking, I want, I want that. Totally sucks. So not fair. But I, I can see that I can see the goodness in me being safe enough for them to let themselves out and be wherever they need to be. Right. But is a lot it's a lot to hold um i eventually moved just what you're talking about it is so challenging for kids to switch from another set of rules to um the chaos that was uh, often where they were into my home and i eventually petitioned to switch the transition to school so that he would get them to school on monday morning and we tr transitioned that day and that was actually, I mean, I apologize to the teachers, but that that distraction that helped absorb a lot of that the um the angst, I think it made it a lot smoother for when they would come back to me. So at this point, the post-separation abuse uh continues. And surely uh you you're now get to see a lot of of what is going on. So how does the post-separation abuse continue? And then uh, separately after that, uh, maybe surely you chime in a little bit on what you're seeing and what you're observing. And are you two having conversations with each other? Are you two friendly with each other? 
um, because you do become friends eventually, but we'll find out a lot later, I guess, about that. Yeah, I would say I every day kept being so ridiculously complicated. And I remember thinking, there's not that much, there's not that much for us to do. We could agree so quickly right now. We could divide up our assets. We could figure out a plan for these kids and we can move on. And it drug out for a year and a half just with nonstop, nonstop drama, I would say. In the meantime, kids have now interacted with the first time I saw that, I went to a game that was an hour or so away, and I, I didn't realize how connected they were. I didn't, I didn't, I don't know what I thought, but I, I pulled up and saw uh, them all, my whole family really sprawled out on this blanket with Shirley, and I was embarrassed. I was ashamed that this life that I thought I had was completely a ghost and now there's another one right there and now now I'm looking at it my kids have this whole new this whole new life and that was uh that was really that was upsetting I I had to leave uh I had to go sit in my car partway through to to breathe and figure out how I felt about that it was a lot meanwhile I do know who Shirley is and I have friends that were good friends with her and I respect her. And deep down, I am grateful that my kids have some stability because rather than bouncing around from multiple homes, with varied levels of sketchiness. Now they were in this home of this woman that I knew of and respected. And I knew they were getting meals and I knew that there were some conversations happening and I eventually came to really find gratitude for that because I had not wanted him for so 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 long so there was never there was not any sense of jealousy it and it really was just I mean this is better this is better for my kids right here you know the last thing I think I would say about the abuse that is very common is this really, again, confusing. Why is this person coming after me for the kids that he did never demonstrated that he wanted and eventually finding out it's financial, financial. And the reason he keeps pushing the kids with this narrative of 50, 50 is because if it's 50, 50, he doesn't have to pay. And he has told me all along how unfair it is that he has to pay any child support. He blatantly lied on his financials so that he got out of paying any spousal support. He's self-employed, so he created his own numbers. And I remember having to choose, do I want to spend $15,000 to have a forensic uh, accountant look through his numbers and then maybe come up with uh, some better information for me, or do I just? I have found out in the meantime that we have ninety thousand dollars of credit card debt that I had no knowledge of. Somehow they were in my name, so he had he had 
completed, he'd used my social security number and forged my signature. And I was on these cards that I didn't know about, but suddenly, and without any shame on his part, that was absolutely community property. And it is, it is. Um, but that was, that amount then came out of the value of the house as I was holding on to that. And I remember thinking, this is so shitty. This feels so wrong on so many levels that I have to pay you money to stay in this house that I have no way. I have no way of getting up to, you know, par right now. I'm so, I'm so stuck. And his, how cold he was, how cruel he was, heartless about that. Again, part of that terrorist feeling. It was just, it's so, it's such betrayal. Regardless, though, as we're transitioning into this, I'm I'm seeing my kids at his house and my middle child and I, we, we have a disagreement um, really for the first time, the first parent kid head to head disagreement. He wanted to go to a school across town because my ex had told him that's where all the good lacrosse coaches were. And truth be told, that's where all the money is. And he he literally told his assistants who I've talked to later that was his that was his goal and so he convinces my kid that he really should go to the school and I say I don't want you to do that I don't like it I having I fought so hard to be available to you and I won't be able to get you to I won't be able to take you to school you won't be able to walk um I won't be able to bail you out I won't be able to come get you from work because now I have a real job again and Um, and we were head to head on it and he really wanted to. And I finally said, okay, you show me how you're going to get there. If you're going to take the bus, you're going to bike. If you can make it happen, then I trust you. And, um, as long as we understand that this is, these are my limitations, right? I can't do the, oh my gosh, I missed the bus. Can you drive me? I won't, I won't be able to do that. And you'll be on your own for that. And so I felt like we came to an agreement on that. And, um, I was actually so proud of that because we worked through this really hard thing and I didn't get conflict with my parents and being able to press into that with my kids was one of my big, big goals. It was one of my heartaches that I wasn't able to demonstrate that in my marriage for my kids. That was one of my ultimate goals to show what it looks like to be mad and then to be honest and then to repair. And um, so I thought we had moved into that and my ex, took that little vulnerability and put gas on it and fed him, you know, mom's controlling. She just doesn't want you to have a lacrosse career. She knows that she knows that you'll do, you know, whatever, if you go there. And that's why she did. She's just trying to put a hamper on your life. And meanwhile, I think that's not true. I know how I feel about this kid and I love him and he loves me and he is squishy and cuddly with me when he's here but I watched him have to hold on to this anger for his dad and he he used that he used that imaginary story that we don't get along and blew it up so that he could get custody of my middle kid and he took me to court and I actually this was one of our hard things I walked in there thinking, no way, there's not, a judge isn't going to say, 
you know, I'm going to just grant full custody for this, you know, take this kid away from his mom. And in fact, she did within moments, the judge just said, yeah, my kid, my ex had sort of coerced, in my opinion, my kid to write a letter. And the judge looked at it and within 15 minutes, it was, it was done. And again, I was so stunned. And that was his financial ticket to finally say, now the numbers match up in terms of our time and I don't have to pay you anymore. And meanwhile, my kids are holding on to this anguish. Now they see dad wants this golden child full time, but then, but, but we're not doing that. And they couldn't even speak to it. If I would ask them, how does that feel to you? Is that upsetting that, that, you know, you guys, that there's this discrepancy, right? And, and they were like, no, that makes sense. You know, you guys don't get along. That's just kind of, it makes, it, it makes sense. It all makes sense. And really, I think that they would all literally say that to this day. And um, uh, yeah, I would say really to finish up, I continue to bear the fallout emotionally. Um, they still carry the torch for his poor victim life. I only with my older child now can we touch on it and talk about some hard things. My other two, this wall goes up and absolutely we, we cannot discuss it. And that lack of integrity in my own home is uh, has been the absolute the hardest thing to feel like I can't trust my kids, feel like my kids are suspicious of me. And um, yeah, that's that's kind of where we're at when this, when we. And surely what is your um, perspective of how, I guess the children are being um, treated, talked to. Um, do you see what's going on? Do you see that there's brainwashing? Do you, are you privy to these things? Um, do you even have language for any of these things that are happening? Because we don't know yet your experience of, um, your life, uh, yet. And the things that, uh, cause you to speak up or cause you to shrink or cause you to all those things. So what's your perspective at this point of how the children are being treated and then as well as how Laverne is being treated or how she's being spoken to. And what are you believing? Early on, um, he portrayed himself as the most loving, doting, playful, involved dad. Um, he had a whole laundry list of stories of all the ways he showed up along the way when the kids were young, very involved, very present. Um, and I believe a lot of that ties into what he very keenly figured out what I was needing <laughs> from a partner. Uh, and I mean, the first year and a half, I can't, the day, the timeline is tricky. I think the first year and a half, we were not living together, but then he later moved into my house. And throughout that time, for the first two years or so, I would say that I would, I would have testified that he was a fantastic dad. Um, he, I never witnessed um, any of the darkness that I now know he's capable of. 
that I didn't know throughout our relationship, actually. I didn't discover that until he moved out. Um, the degree of evil, <laughs> just diabolical tone. And um, I, I was not privy to any of that. Um, I think he knew better than to put that out in public. Um, instead, he played himself out to be very much the victim that Jody was controlling and, um, you know, hard-nosed and was going to fight for the kids. And it was unjustified because she was so upset that he moved out that she, the person that none of us want to be, right, is the vengeful, spiteful ex. Um, that's very much how he portrayed her. Um, Sorry, and as far as like recognizing, um, you know, the reality of what he's of being a good dad, and then uh, how he talks to the children, where did you ever say like, hey, that's that's not right, or how you're speaking of um, uh, Laverne maybe isn't the right thing to do in front of kids, or did you have, did you have experience in that at all at that point? Yeah, no, that's actually a great question. I, um, I I can touch on this more later, but I do recall there being a couple different instances where he pushed it a little bit too far, and I I drew a line in the sand, and I said, I don't want to hear about this. She is not part of our relationship. Um, it's it's too much. I can't I can't you can't download all of this on me all the time because it was quite constant. Um, for a while and i guess before we we end off um this part of 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 the podcast um laverne do you have any words of wisdom for everyone who is listening right now it gets better it gets better it feels impossible and then a little beautiful thing will happen and you think, oh, look, I'm stronger. I, I see that. I see those things. Now that won't happen to me again. And I see the hope in my kids. I see them growing. I see them every in microwaves becoming stronger, finding their own voice. And that is my ultimate hope is that my kids grow deeper and manage to be as least gay as possible. And sometimes I look back at some of the, what I was dealing with on a regular basis. And now it's very intermittent and it's total bullshit when it happens, but I can see it as that. And I don't spin out. I guess that would be my main thing. So many, so many uh, healthy parents are just constantly being spun out by the chaos and the, the, accusations and the suspicion and um that that for me that has lessened and the more i find my voice the more i um find ways of accepting where things are uh it gets better well thank you laverne for those words of wisdom and uh thank you surely for you know, chiming in here and in being here for this whole entire uh, process. And it's not easy to be in the background and, and listen. 
Um, so thank you, uh, both of you. And we're going to end off this episode before we get to uh, Shirley's episode, which will be part two. So there'll be a part two released here pretty much at the exact same time on the exact same day. So, uh, please look out for that. Uh, but if you want to be a guest like Laverne and Shirley were on this episode, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And just read all the instructions, either fill out our Guest Form, or you can send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. Also at our website, we have our very own safe social network. So if you need some support, please click on the button at our website page that says Support Group. It takes you to our support group. We have ad-free episodes on there. We have episodes that never made it to air. We have Zoom meetings on there. If you need those Zoom meetings support every Wednesday night, Thursday night, and Saturday night. And we have our forum boards as well. And if you need even more support, please do go visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. At domesticshelters.org, you can access articles and resources. They are free. You can look up shelters and get access to shelters by with the phone numbers and emails there. So please do go to domesticshelters.org to access that free resource today. And I just want to thank Laverne and Shirley for being our guests and You will hear them again on part two. But for now, for myself, Laverne, and Shirley, we hope you have a good night.